welcome to Crawl Space. Tonight, we have our favorite author on. Isn't that right, Lance? He was my favorite author before I realized that he was my favorite author, right? John Ronson. John Ronson, the author of The Psychopath Test, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, Frank, The Men Who Stare at Goats, Lost at Sea. It's really an honor. It really is. I mean, you don't get to speak to someone who's been on the New York Times bestseller list. I remember seeing The Men Who Stare at Goats at the Sherman Oaks Arclight back when it came out in 2009 with an old co-worker buddy. So we've known of John Ronson for a long time, and if you haven't heard the name, uh, you will, especially if you like podcasts, because he's got a new podcast that's coming out. The Butterfly Effect with John Ronson is coming to Audible on July 27th, and every other podcast app in November. So you want to get the Audible app, and it's free. But this is a guy who's been around the industry who immerses himself in the topics that he covers in an incredibly impressive way. Right, and the topics that he covers aren't anything that you see on the front page of the papers. These topics that he covers are things that you use and you view and you experience on your everyday, in your everyday life. And you don't realize where they came from or how important they are or how much they influence you. And, and it all started with one thing. It all started with one person's idea, probably very simple. And then, hence the butterfly effect. It's very impactful once that catches on. And uh, The Psychopath Test is one of John's books, and it is the best book I've ever read in my life, the most entertaining book I've ever read, and my favorite book. Um, and if you're into the things that we're into, psychopaths, psychology, getting into the heads of darkness, like in the minds of dark people, like this is... This is the book for you, but it's funny. It's incredibly funny, and, and John is just a very funny guy. Very funny and delicate, and he dances around. You know what he's saying, and he dances around it, but he does it in this charming, delicate way and, and funny way. Uh, and you, you said um, that the psychopath test is something that, that we can relate to because of the topics, the subject matter that we discuss. It's also about like the duplicity or the duality of man, right? Where John even says that he got caught up in how to identify a psychopath and he got power hungry. He got kind of drunk with power um, on how to identify a psychopath. So you have these people who have no empathy and then you have somebody who's got a ton of empathy getting drunk with power, identifying these. It's this whole like situation that, that happens because he has immersed himself so deep into these stories and into, um, into, into, into the topics and, and the world that, that these people create. Uh, the psychopath test. Yeah. was one of the most entertaining books before we knew about John Ronson, before we knew that he listened to the podcast and and thought we were adorable. Right. So part one of this interview actually aired on Missing Maura Murray earlier this week. Uh, so if you want to hear part one of this interview, which we talk a little bit about some of his uh, recent works, a film called Okja, which is amazing. Check that out. That's on Netflix. We also talk about Maura Murray a little bit. So if you want to hear that chat with John, check it out on the Missing Maura Murray podcast. This episode is specifically you know, more about psychology and some of his other writings and works and a little bit about Trump, but it's not really political. So please save your political tweets. We're not talking about politics. We're talking about Trump as a person. You know, honestly, it's really tough to talk about his books that are called So You've Been Publicly Shamed and The Psychopath Test and the subject matter in there. And it, 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 we'd be doing a disservice to our listeners if we didn't talk about politics. Because what he's written about years ago is directly relatable to what's happening right now. Yeah, but we really don't talk about politics. No, we don't. We actually try to stay away from it. We just talk about the personalities in politics. Exactly. What I meant with it would be a disservice is that this is why John writes these books. It's almost it, – it, it is very like – and I, I might have said it during the interview. It's very Orwellian the way he writes these books. He writes The Psychopath Test. He writes Them, the one that he gets involved with extremist groups, The Elephant in the Room. So it's not so much like we had a political conversation. It was more like the books that he's written a couple of years ago were extremely perceptive to the situation that this country's at right now. Also, check out our live show. We are doing a live show in the Boston area in Somerville, Massachusetts's Davis Square at the Rockwell Theater, 10 p.m. on August 18th, a Friday night. Jordan Bonaparte from Nighttime Podcast is coming down from Canada to join us for this very special live show event. And we have two special guests to announce 
the co-founder of the Satanic Temple, Lucian Greaves, is going to join us. As well as Elise from the Cryptid Antiquarian blog, where we'll talk a little bit about the vanishing men of Boston who are found dead in water. Um, So you are really going to enjoy this live show. Come out. There's a link to buy tickets in the show notes. It's not very expensive. Um, the, the tickets are limited because there's only 200 seats in the theater. The theater's super cool. There's a there's a, a restaurant, a, a, a gastro pub right next door called Saloon. That's like a uh, it's like a speakeasy. Davis Square is probably one of the coolest little neighborhoods outside of Boston. To get there is super easy. You just take the public transportation or you could drive in. There's a couple of free lots down there or street parking. Take the red line to Davis Square and just walk 100 feet down to our theater. It is a little bit later on just because that's how we roll. Because we don't do we do not do prime time. We do, we're too cool for the prime time. We do a little bit after prime time. Also, if you want to come down for dinner or drinks before the show, we are going to do a little bit of a meet and greet from 730 to 9 um, at the saloon there, which is right next to the Rockwell uh, Theater. And so we're going to be setting up for the show from 9 to 10 and then the show starts at 10 um so from like 7 8 to 9 we're gonna be out there hanging out with you guys having a few drinks getting some dinner not cleared with the restaurant yet but probably <laughs> yeah it's probably gonna be fine yeah it'll be i fun. mean i'm not saying it's gonna be an official thing we're just gonna be there hanging out and our conversation with john ronson took place in audio boom and audio boom is the platform that we release these podcasts on they host us uh they have built a new studio in downtown manhattan it is it's gorgeous it it is functional and it is state-of-the-art and they were gracious enough to allow us to meet with john ronson for a couple hours and and talk about all of these i mean we could have stayed there for like five hours it was the the staff there is amazing and and talia was equally amazing and pretty amusing with her uh fan crush on john ronson follow us on twitter at crawlspace pod and follow john ronson on twitter at john ronson thank you very much for listening I do want to shift gears a little bit to talk about um, the concept of uh, of a psychopath yeah. and the concept of trolling. And if you think there's a difference, um, mm. maybe a year ago I was playing around with the notion of there being a, a difference between a psychopath online and being normal. Yeah, you know, I did a little bit of um, – I remember when I was writing So You've Been Publicly Shamed, at one point I did – I went back to the psychopath checklist and thought – is is the internet turning us more psychopathic just as a species? And I sort of came to the conclusion, actually, not not that much. Like of the psychopath checklist, there's only a couple of items which kind of um, which relate to the way that we behave online. I think we do become less empathetic online, no doubt, mm-hmm. when, yeah. you know, we dehumanize people, we bully people for ideological reasons not just trolls but in a way trolls i don't know trolls interest me less than people who bully people for more complicated um ideological reasons so and so you've been publicly shamed one of the i guess the sort of um centerpiece stories about this woman called justine sacco who tweeted just before getting on a plane to Cape Town, tweeted, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. <clears throat> and thought she was doing a kind of South Park joke, you know, like that everybody would get. When she when I say everybody, like her tiny number of Twitter followers, like a hundred Twitter followers, um, everybody would understand that she was making a joke like making fun of her own privilege. But then when she was asleep on a plane, she became like the worldwide number one trending topic on Twitter and hundreds of thousands of people just just destroyed her and I'm more interested in those sorts of things because 
because the rationale is just much more com there would certainly trolls got involved yeah. you know some somebody wrote somebody hiv positive should rape this bitch and then we'll find out if her skin color protects her from aids or i'm i'm hoping she gets aids lol there was enough of those like right. trolls who just enjoyed kind of jubilant online chaos but other bullies did it for way more complicated reasons of social justice and mm-hmm. and wanting to show the other people in their circle that they were good people. So, you know, I'm going to destroy this bad person as a way of demonstrating that I am a good person and so on. Um, yeah, I don't know why I went off on that tangent. No, it's <laughs> fascinating. It's yeah. fascinating. It leads into other things, which is you find these stories and you... When do you know? Is there something? Because you must yeah. find dozens of stories. When do, when does one click? Like the Pornhub one and and this yeah. one. When does it click? And you say because a lot of a lot of what you're talking about is something that a lot of most people would read as like a headline and then scroll to something yeah. else. But you read something and and you say there's way more to this. Yeah, this really tells us something about the world. You're okay, right, you're looking for that moment, um, and you stumble on it. You know, but with Justine, it was like. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I was like one of a tiny number of people. That night, um, no one defended her. Mm. No one. Like not no not the mainstream media. It was like this, you know, this giant, this kind of Godzilla bully kind of had sprung up from the internet and was stamping on everything and everyone was too scared to to try and push back. Right. Um, and all the pushback would be would just be somebody saying, "Hey, can you wait to the plane land? <laughs> yeah, you know, let, yeah, that's, I, just wait to the she plane. She made a bad like, joke. Yeah, or or not even that. Like, I've got a feeling it may have been a liberal joke that was badly worded. Can we wait until the plane lands? Um, waiting until the plane lands was considered weakness that night um, because the prevailing view was we are so woke." This is amongst the left. Like, everyone destroyed Justine. The left, the right, trolls, misogynists. Like, everyone banded together to destroy Justine. But the left, who kind of interests me the most, because I'm kind of from the left, um, although not that, you know, a less authoritarian left, I'd say, uh, were like, we are so woke that waiting... Like, we... We know what, who she is and what she's thinking, even if she doesn't. And anything she says is going to be a lie because, you know, we know. Mm-hmm. So waiting for the plane to land was, would, would have been considered weakness that night. Mm. So when all of these thoughts, like, cascaded into me, I thought, um, God, this, is, this, is re- this is like an important moment in like, history. Like I, I, and no one else can see it. Like right. No one else can notice that this is really fucked up mm-hmm. and really important. It's, we, society has changed and it's crystallized in the destruction of this woman. So, yeah, so I, got, I felt very excited, I suppose, to have noticed something that nobody else had noticed. Right. Um, I say excited, but it was also very stressful. Like most of my stories, like I immerse myself completely, but they don't affect my mental health. This story, for some reason, like... It, it, it snaked its way into my head. Do you think it's because it's so um, relevant? Because of today? Yeah. Because of that? And because it was us, like everyone. Yeah. It was us doing it. Yeah. Like with, um, I mean, I've told stories about white separatists being shot by the FBI. Mm-hmm. Like on a selfish level, I'm never going to be shot by the FBI. Like that's really not going to happen. So, so you can feel incredibly sorry for this person, and. Um, but but there's always going to be a little bit of a distance. Like, I am not a white separatist, and I'm not going to take my family to the top of a mountain in Idaho and then, you know, piss off the local U.S. marshals and hoard guns and then get <laughs> killed. Like, I, that's not going to happen to me, my family. That's what that's what they all say. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but with Justin Sacco, it's like I am... I am both Justin Sacco and I am also the people who tore Justin Sacco apart. Right. So I think that's why it, that's why it snaked its way into me. And yeah. And you could we we all could be one bad joke away from that. Yeah, absolutely. I, and and we you know we, we make are. a lot of bad jokes. Yeah, and it's so. <laughs> Uh, can I tell you a story of something that happened to me? I gave a talk at the Oxford Union, which is supposed to be like highfalutin. It's supposed to be like Hogwarts. Um, <laughs> and, um, and on the surface, it looks like Hogwarts. Like the room looks like Hogwarts. And anyway, I made this 
joke on stage. It was being live tweeted. This is about how any of us are like one step away from being Justin Sacco. It was being live tweeted by this student who was like one of the people on the Oxford Union body. You know, the Oxford Union is like the kind of Harvard whatever. And uh, so I so I kind of got on stage, told some stories, told the Justin Sacco story. And then during the Q&A, I said, like, um, you know, I suppose, and I, I said as a joke, I said, well, it's sort of a joke. It's like a nuanced point. I said, you know, one one thing you can say for like Twitter is that, um, you know, schlubby white men like me finally know what it's like to be objectified, which is progress, I suppose. Um, anyway, I sort of <laughs> chuckled to myself. Everyone in the audience laughed and, you know, it was like a you know joke and yeah. so on. Anyway, when I got into the car, I thought, I wonder how that live tweeting went. So it was like, John Ronson is taking the stage. Next tweet. John Ronson says white men are being objectified. John Ronson's leaving the stage. That was basically <laughs> it. Uh, I, and I had to phone up the Oxford Union and, like, yell at them, like, you know, did you not just listen to my fucking talk? <laughs> um, so they deleted the tweet, but not before. I'd say two or 300 people were like, look at this. Look at how, wow. look at how close. Yeah. You just danced on the edge of... Of mm. of being what you write about, yeah. You, know, you just you know, like if, if that could have stayed there, and then you could have oh, been yeah. spending the re- like a, a better part of your career that joke over and over, and <laughs> right? Over and, and going over on again. like shows and saying, "I'm not saying this, guys. Yeah. It was a joke. I'm sorry." <laughs> it's it's no crazy. one in the room. Like no one in the room took that line for anything other than what it was, which was a joke. Yeah. Um, but of course, on the internet, you know. Are decontextualized. What a nightmare. What a fucking nightmare we've created for ourselves on social media. Yep. You know, think of what social media could have been it, and, and still is to, to an extent is a place, a window into other people's lives. You know, you, I follow people with mental health problems with 100 Twitter followers and I follow people with 8 million Twitter followers. And the thing I love most about social media when I first got onto it was how egalitarian it was. Like I would find somebody who's had like a difficult life and they're so funny and interesting. And they've only got 100 Twitter followers, but, you know, their voice is coming onto my computer in the same way that, you know, somebody with 10 million followers, Katy Perry or Rupert Murdoch. It's like this extraordinary window into people's lives. And it's egalitarian. It's, and it's about curiosity. Mm-hmm. But we took this thing of curiosity and we turned it into a thing of judgment and, and destruction. Uh, you know, and control too, and, yeah, and and censoriousness, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and you know, I, I truly believe that all of us on the right and on the left, you, you know, with this hard, cold judgment, it was like we all polluted the lake, and then what emerged from the polluted lake, like a mutant fish, is President Trump. I was, so, uh, yeah, like you, you were saying that, and that I, I had the visual of this like frogman coming out, and then, yeah. and then all of a sudden he grew like this comb over, yes, this blonde comb over. Exactly. Yeah, I want to say to the people who, you know, tore apart Justin Sacco, it's like, you know, Breitbart and Infowars propagandized the hell out of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like every yeah. time you did this, Breitbart went crazy on it, mm-hmm. and. Some middle American guy who personally, I think, would have voted for Bernie Sanders, um, who spoke to their concerns, saw what the left was concerned with. And the left was concerned with just tearing apart somebody who stepped out of line, even in the smallest way. And they thought, well, that doesn't speak to me. Bernie Sanders might have spoke to me, but this doesn't speak to me. I'm voting for Trump. Right. Mm. Yep. There's a huge, huge portion of people that... That that thought just like that. I was yeah. uh, watching something with, um, you know, Dan Savage. Yeah, yeah, and he he described the people, and I mean, it's his own opinion, but he described that group of people as like knuckle dragging America, and it doesn't take much. Yeah. It doesn't take yeah. much to convince a segment yeah. like that to yeah to to think in in a way like it's easy. Trump is the monster that we created. Yeah, yeah, yes. absolutely. And and if he wasn't president of the United States, it'd be no problem for people to just say, "What is this troll doing? Yeah. What is this troll doing?" I mean, he's a troll. He's a troll. He's 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 the biggest yeah. troll in the world right now. Yes. Yeah. So, are you guys to bring it back to Moa Moa? Are, are you um, sort of your? You think about trolls and stuff because they've become a big part of your life since you started doing this podcast. Yeah, and it's fascinating too. I never thought that we would 
encounter as 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 much hostility uh, in the beginning. We don't so much right now. Actually, I have a couple emails that I'll, I'll show you when we're done that right. that I got yesterday. But um, we it, it it started off as like you took them seriously, and then you don't, and then you just become fascinated with them. Mm. Yeah, I feel like I, it's a it's a classification thing too with, with the word troll. Like uh, yeah, it's a pejorative term. Yeah, like. You know, like I would say, let's going back to my Justin Sacco story. I, I would say that a lot of people who tore apart Justin Sacco didn't didn't tear her apart um, be, because they were trolls. They tore apart because they genuinely thought that they were doing the right thing. Yeah, um, right, right. So you have people who 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 think they're doing the right thing, especially with the true crime genre. They think they're doing the right thing by coming up with a, a solution for the case. So, but then are trolls just trying to amuse themselves? There's certainly some people who just kind of do it, you know, for, for, I mean, they may have their own kind of issues, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but who doesn't, mm-hmm. um, who are doing it just for, you know, because they think sort of online chaos is, is it has its own, is its own reward. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think people, people get off on that. People get off on the, you know, they don't have an, I'm just generalizing, but I, I imagine they don't have a lot of power outside of the online community. And then they get yeah. into their online community, and it's literally anything they want to do. Yeah. I mean, there's other people who kind of do it kind of for ideological reasons. I mean, some 4chan people, um, you know, there's a sort of uh, sort of um, anarchy to it that some mm-hmm. people do it because they, you know, they sort of see themselves as sort of sowing, uh, you know, sowing kind of anarchic chaos. Right. Um like I know some of the four chan people who a woman called Mercedes Hafer, for instance, who was nearly put in prison for hacking into PayPal and that's what she would say that she she does it as part of this sort of, you know, spreading chaos for almost for sort of ideological reasons. Yeah. I, I feel like in a lot in a lot of ways, especially the ones that we run into, like they don't necessarily see the outcome. You know, mm. like they don't see how we deal with it. So how is it gratifying to them? Yeah. Um yeah, I think they just maybe they just enjoy it from there, from from inside their own heads. Yeah, um, and it's hard to tell. Like, there's some people who are happy to know that it's really hurting other people, but then there's other people who have to psychologically trick themselves into thinking that's not the case. I noticed this time and again. Um, going back to Justin Sacco, I asked the guy who started the campaign against her while she was asleep on the plane. Like, how does it? How did it feel? And he said, oh, it felt delicious. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then he said, this is a Gorka journalist, quite, quite well-known journalist. And then he said, but I'm sure she's fine now. Because um, is he justifying it? Is he? Is he? Um, yeah, because he's, he's playing a trick. He's playing a psychological trick on himself. Yep. Like he can only be OK with what he did if he can trick himself into thinking she's fine now. I noticed this actually the other day with um, with the guy Otto Warmbier, the guy who died after coming out of North Korea. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, when he was arrested, a, a bunch of commentators were like, you know, service him right for being, you know, privileged and a bro and a, you know, alpha male. But they would often, they would have to caveat that because you see him sobbing uncontrollably um, in court. Yeah. So that doesn't fit with service him right. So they have to caveat it by saying it was crocodile tears. If you look, you'll see the phrase crocodile tears. Yeah. And that's they don't say that for no reason. They don't maybe don't realize the reason why they're saying that. But the reason why they're saying that is because of cognitive dissonance. They they don't want to see themselves as, as a bad person. So they have to pretend that they haven't done a bad thing. Yeah. Why can't people just admit they're wrong? And and why can't we all admit that there's gray in life and nothing is black and white? Well, I Yeah. <laughs> I tell you who was good at this, I, I think, was, was Obama. I think Obama was warning about all of this. He gave a number of speeches mm-hmm. where he said the center is dying. Everybody's retreating to their corners. You know, you should watch out. The center is dying and things could get worse. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, things did get worse. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they've been there's there's many historical figures that have been uh, talking about that for for years and they do a different they they come across uh, in a different way each mm-hmm. each person does and kennedy talked about it and malcolm x talked about it and they both have their different mm-hmm. platforms and their different um processes to to deliver that message um yeah but it is uh it's not it's not a gradual death 
I mean, it is a gradual death. It's yeah. not an instant death. I mean, my one hope is is that you know having having Trump as president might at least you know show everybody what it was that we've been hurtling towards these past three or four years, and here you go. You know, this this is what this is this is what happened. Yep. And as ironic as it is, we're experiencing exactly what democracy is. Yeah. You're not going to get away. Like, you're not going to get away with that. Yeah. You're here by the people for the people, and you can say fake news all you want, but you're just you're not going to get away with it. Yeah. And and my hope is when all this is over, um, it maybe people will. I mean, I say this because I'm I'm a moderate. I mean, I'm, my natural place is being a moderate. Mm-hmm. And I'm just hoping that this will make people, you know, remember that being a moderate isn't that bad. Right. Yeah. 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 I just hope in like, <laughs> in like three and a half years, <laughs> we're not having another conversation where I'm like, yeah. remember when I said he's not going to get away with it? Yeah. <laughs> like, I know. We're in for another we're, four years. Oh, God, but, um, well, we could be talking about Russia, that whole uh, the whole story there. Uh, yeah. In a couple of years, I don't know. Where, where do you stand on on that? Do you think there's there's validity to that story? Uh, I, I had I had a drink the other night with a sort of high up journalist on a high up newspaper, and he said to me, "We're all getting a little bit worried that <laughs> there's no there's no story here, and it's going to come back and burn us." Right? Um, I, who knows? I don't know. But didn't and, and I don't think they know either. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I think that he, he was basing that simply on like more stuff should have come out by now if it was going to come out. Yeah. yeah. And I don't see I don't I don't see where I wrote down. We're going to have Trump political talk. <laughs> Sorry. No, but, Sorry. but I'll, I'll keep going yeah. with it. Uh. <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We have to be really careful about the information that's being put out there because recently there have, the, every every news organization assesses all the information, all the tips that come into them, all the all the leads that they that they get, mm-hmm. and there there I think it was Rachel Maddow who just looked at some information that seemed like it was uh, very much linking Trump to Russia, and they looked into it and they uh, they they vetted it and just determined that it was fake. Right. And now, and it was coming right on the heels of the CNN reporters who were just they they resigned because of that. And it wouldn't yeah. surprise me if there's some media machine that's feeding information that the left media wants to hear, so that they go ahead and and print it or say it, and then it comes back around like that's not true. It's, yeah, it's it's possible. I and mean, that's very are, Orwellian, and that's very yeah, they're very Machiavellian people. I mean, Roger yep. Stone, who's you know yeah. in, deep in the background, who I've who I've met is a extremely Machiavellian person. This is the way that they think. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I have tried to watch that documentary, uh-huh. and I just finished it recently, but it took me three three tries. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Give me Roger Stone. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know whether he's a genius or whether he's... Mm. I mean, is he a psychopath? Well, I'll tell you what I can tell you about Roger Stone, which is that he he's the man who brokered the meeting between Donald Trump and my old friend Alex Jones. And, and when I was covering this, I wrote an e-book last summer called The Elephant in the Room, which was about Alex Jones's relationship with Donald Trump, because I've known Alex Jones for like 20 years. Um, and I was sort of piecing together just sort of how it worked, like how their meeting worked. And it was through Roger Stone. And I said to Roger Stone, this is going to backfire on you. Right. Like, you know, because Alex is crazy. Alex Jones is crazy. He, he believes these crazy things. Um, and if you align Alex Jones with Trump, it's going to backfire on you. And he was like, no, it's not. Yeah. And, and, and he was right. And I was wrong. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm pretty certain that Alex's base of however many million people, three or four million people who probably wouldn't have voted if Alex hadn't told them to vote for Trump. Mm. Um, you know, maybe they swung the election. Wow. Either way, it, I was certain that Trump aligning himself with Alex would 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 repel more people than it attracted, and it would be more proof that Trump wouldn't win the election. 
but Roger Stone had some sort of he was tapped into something. He was where he knew. Yeah, yeah no, he it's, was. it's actually going to help. He was very confident. Yeah, uh, that that this was going to help. Crazy. What? Yeah. Um, one more thing on the Trump thing. Okay. Um, okay. When he tweeted, "Modern," you know, I, I'm not pre- presidential. I'm modern day presidential mm. in in caps. Isn't that like kind of a backwards way to look at it? it it's only mm. because he's the president. Can he call himself modern day presidential? Like if yeah. I if I took people who worked at Baskin Robbins and I went in there with a gun and said, this is motherfucking modern day Baskin Robbins. Like, I, would, I wouldn't be wrong. No. <laughs> I suppose the one thing Trump is doing, like, I listened to Pod Save America uh, and, you know, they always sound exasperated when Trump does something kind of unreconstructed and, you know, writes a tweet that doesn't go through a committee and, you know, they, and that seems to be working mm-hmm. yeah. uh, for people. Trump just speaking his mind. I mean, the fact is, it's, you know, for all the awfulness that, that it entails, um, tweeting from your gut, however corrosive your gut is, seems to, seems to be more popular for a lot of people than tweeting after it's gone to, after the tweet's gone yeah. through a committee. Yeah, right. And so maybe you, that's what he meant by modern day president. Or do you yeah. think yeah. that he was expressing some sort of cognitive uh, dissonance right there? By like, like, well, he's certainly very good at, uh, at seeing the world through his prism of of you know the power of positive thinking. Right. Growing up in in Manhattan, his preacher was was Norman Vincent Peale, who wrote the Power of Positive Thinking. Mm. And Trump has spoken a lot about how Norman Vincent Peale, you know, who was this kind of huge, you know, like, you know, power of positive thinking was probably his biggest success is how to influence and influence people. And, yeah. you know, later on, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Mm. And, and and I think, you know, Trump has found a way to see the world in a Norman Vincent Peale way where everything that happens is positive. Mm. And if it's not, then it's fake. Yeah. If it's not, it's just people out to get him. Yeah. 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 Mm. So a couple of weeks ago, I was in I was in the city here and uh, met with an old friend of mine who is uh, now high up in the in the business world. And he works at one of the top investment banks in town and he's got a high position up there. And I said I told him that we were coming down here in a couple of weeks to interview John Ronson. He wrote the psychopath test, um, which basically says or it, it looks at the idea that there are a lot of psychopaths high up in the business world. And he goes Psh, like that. And, and I said, we, that's definitely true. <laughs> and I just thought it was interesting that he didn't think that it was true, it. but yet he's surrounded yeah. by these people. Well, okay, the, the statistics, according to Robert Hare, who's like the kind of father of modern-day psychopathy research, who's kind of widely admired, is that you're four times more likely to have a psychopath at the top of the business world than at the bottom. You're four times more likely to have one in the boardroom and not in the janitor's room. Um, but I think... In certain sectors, anyway, the kind of quick kill sectors. What they're not good at, psychopaths. They're not. They're not patient people. They don't really kind of assiduously build up a business over, uh, uh, you know, over many years. They're not Richard Branson. Um, I mean, I think everybody who's incredibly successful has some sort of psychological issue yeah. that, that propels them up there. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of them, it's not psychopathy. I, I think you'll find a preponderance of psychopathy in the kind of business which is all about a quick kill, like get in make a shitload of money and then get out again. Yep. Th- those are the companies where you're going to find psychopaths, you know. Um, so hedge funds, for instance, is, mm. is the kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, uh, uh, it's it's plausible when you look at the checklist. Yeah. So many of the items on the checklist are rewarded in, by, you know, certain sectors of capitalism. Quite often it doesn't work out. You know, quite often these are people who then get mired in accountancy fraud and the shareholders regret ever making them the CEO. Right. Um, you know, because psychopathy quite often equals malevolence. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, they're impulsive and they're irresponsible. Those are two items on the checklist. So, so I think a classic corporate psychopath would be somebody who goes into a failing, goes into a business like wows everybody, becomes the CEO, everybody like is very charismatic, makes a hell of a lot, you know, behaves in this very ruthless way, makes a hell of a lot of money for the shareholders. But then after like six months, it all collapses Mm -hmm. um, and they may emerge unscathed and go and do it again in another company. Right. Exactly. Now, 
Do you see a correlation between genius and being a psychopath? And how do you categorize Stanley Kubrick? Because I know right. you've had some experience with him and his work and his family. Yeah, I spent a lot of time up at the Stanley Kubrick's house in England. I made a documentary called Stanley Kubrick's Boxes. Which, can you tell me where to see that? Because I'm trying to find oh, it. Oh, you know what? Vimeo just took it down. Yeah. Um, I've got it on my computer. I wonder whether I should put it up on Vimeo but then I'm breaking my own <laughs> copyright so I and I'll probably get into trouble with Warner Brothers um, if I've got the guts I'll do it <laughs> I don't want to put you in any yeah. position um, well I, I certainly don't think Stanley Kubrick was a psychopath you know but psychopaths aren't patient and Stanley Kubrick was incredibly patient okay there was a story about a guy called Jack Abbott um, who was in prison I think he murdered a man he was in prison and Norman Mailer discovered him in the 60s mm-hmm. and thought this guy is like a genius writer in a sort of alpha male he's so tough he speaks it as it is you know he gets to the heart of like you know the prison mentality this man's a genius so he petitioned the parole board to get Jack Abbott released from prison and the parole board were like whoa Norman Mailer um, so they released him and uh, can't wait to see where this goes yeah so the first <laughs> night he goes to like a party in Manhattan with um I can't remember who was there, but it was all like highfalutin people from like the New Yorker and the New York Times, I think, um, you know, society photographers, and they all kind of toasted him. And then that night he left the party and went downtown, went to a diner, wanted to use the toilet, and the guy in the diner said, no, this is for customers only. So Jack Abbott said, can you step outside? And Jack Abbott stabbed the man to death. Oh. Yeah. So there's an example of somebody who... Um, Oh, this guy at the diner who worked at the diner wanted to be an actor. And apparently in court, Jack Abbott said, well, he'd never have made it as an actor. So here's somebody who is clearly a psychopathic, oh, who was considered a genius writer by Norman Mailer. Uh, but I think in general, surely to be a kind of great artist, you need empathy. And psychopaths don't have empathy. That's a great well point. Well said. That's a great point. Yeah. 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 Also, let somebody use your bathroom if you're a diner owner. (laughs) If you're a customer. Yeah, (laughs) especially a psychopath. But anyone. Right. I agree. Uh, Avoid problems. Yeah, Yeah, it's on the the counter and it's like strapped to a big spoon. Just go in there. (laughs) No big deal. It's no big deal. Right. Don't get stabbed to death. (laughs) (laughs) Only a psychopath would (laughs) blame the victim quite as much as you just did. Awkward. <laughs> but it was a long time ago. Lance did yeah. score a 12 on the psychopath test at CrimeCon. That's funny. Uh, I convinced myself for oh, a while really? I scored a 15. Oh, yeah, because at CrimeCon I got everyone to do the test. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, yeah. we both scored a 12. Okay. Yeah, yeah. and we but both I, stood up in the back when you, when you said stand up after, if you've got a 10 or more. Right. All yeah, I was right. doing was looking at what Tim was doing. <laughs> and I was like, if, oh, like, okay, I guess I'm at 12. <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't make us psych- psychopaths. No, 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 no. You need to be like 26 out okay. of 40. It's a 20-point checklist, um, but you score zero, one, or 2. So the highest score is 40. Clinically, you're a psychopath. You're diagnosed as a psychopath. If you score 26 out of the 40 in Britain and 27 out of the 40 in the United States. So America is slightly more um, psychopath uh, friendly than Britain. You're allowed to be a little bit more psychopathic in America. One of the things you said during your... uh discussion was um if you're with somebody if it's your significant other and you look over and you see that they scored a 26 just leave immediately yeah, just <laughs> don't worry about hurting their feelings because they don't have any anyway <laughs> yeah that's that's what a harvard psychologist called martha yeah. start once said to me if you're married to a psychopath leave you can't hurt their feelings because there aren't any feelings to hurt right it's yeah so bleak it is bleak right yeah yeah but more Amari, there's no chance she was a psychopath, right, or psych- sociopath. I mean, I, I think it would be a huge coincidence if she was. I mean, that, it's a, there's already a lot of coincidences in this story. I yeah. think that would be yet another one. No, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know very much about her, only only what I'd know from your podcast and James Renner's book. Um, but no, she just seemed like a normal person. Yeah. To circle back with uh, you being up there in New Hampshire and um, – what you do as your um your your journalistic style uh, immersing yourself mm. there's been a number of people who have tried to do that with Morris case and they just see too much darkness mm. what do you think the where do you think the 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 drop off is there where does it become too dark for some people and some people can handle it and make that separation honestly for me 
darkness wouldn't wouldn't be a factor as to whether I was going to do the story or not. Um, mm. For me, it's 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 resonance. It's like what it, you know the story. You know, I kind of think every story that I do is about something, and then it's about something. Uh, it so it's 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 a really interesting story in itself, but then it tells a wider truth about the way that the world works. Those are the stories I'm always looking for. So when I was up in New Hampshire with James, that's I suppose what was in the back of my mind was, you know, the story has to not just be about what happened to Maura Murray; it has to be about something else. Mm-hmm. And I'm still wondering, like, what that is. What that is. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm kind of chilled out. Like, like, I think you have to be chilled out. You have to just sort of do a story that intrigues you. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it will stick, sometimes it won't stick. Mm-hmm. But the only way of doing it... My friend Adam Curtis, the documentary maker, he's, like, one of the world's greatest journalists. And he said to me one time, you know, you go off and do stories, just do stories, and something will come out of them. Uh and I think that's really good advice. Just, you know, when you're in the middle of doing a story, you don't even need to really think about what does this mean. Just just do stories and something will click. And sometimes they won't. Sometimes it will fall by the wayside. Yeah. yeah. That's, that. that's yeah. amazing advice. Yeah. Because, mm. I, I mean, I've done a lot of very, very dark stories. And sometimes mm. they are too dark. Got less circling totally back to the beginning of this conversation, Oakja has a very very dark ending um but Bong Joon-ho managed to turn the darkness into something sort of haunting and beautiful as opposed to Mm off-putting so maybe it's how you tell the story you know I think you can tell a very very dark story but you have to be good enough smart enough to tell it in a way that that matters to people that's meaningful especially when it's something that's like what you work on it these are actual events that happen these are actual yeah. life changing events mm. something that you know so you've been publicly shamed yeah. these are, like we said we made kind of the half joke like we're all on the we're all one bad joke away from yeah so you could tell that story as it's like terrifying mm. uh, you know terrifying like bleak world or you can tell it the way you do which is is you kind of you know there's there's an underlying sense of humor there yes keeps people there we go it keeps people not as dark so when you get into these dark situations there's always this bit of humor yeah that you can turn to yeah yeah although more than my other books shamed is more kind of tense reading experience yes i got uh, my other books are really just just funny and bouncy and charming, I, I, I hope. Whereas she was shamed, I, th- I thought I'd try something different, which was to kind of write a horror movie. Yeah. Um, where, you know, the anxiety that I felt writing the book is on the page. and, and it's, It is. Yeah, and people feel it in their own heads. Yeah. Uh, and I'm quite pleased that, that, that I managed to add that yeah. string to my bow. Yeah, it's just I don't want this to happen to me. It's basically when you're right. reading. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is a yeah. cautionary tale. Be yeah. careful. Yeah. To so- also, social media yeah. horror story. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a horror story. Yeah. It's like it's creeping terror. Right. Um, I never managed to to explain the book properly to people. Like I think people thought they were reading like a, an issue book. But in fact, what they would read if they read it would be, it's like the Blair Witch Project. It's, it's, oh, it's awesome. Yeah, it's yeah. scary. And... Yeah. It's it's like a beach read. It's like the yeah. girl on the train. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do most of my books um, recently through uh, – I'll listen to them through, through Audible. So I, I recently went into – I realized that uh, I didn't have a physical copy of um, Psychopath Test, and I went to Barnes & Noble. And um, do you know where you're categorized, by the way? No. <laughs> I looked everywhere, and the guy was like, oh, it's upstairs – the little corner over there, it's uh, popular psychology. Oh. Yeah, well, it's pretty cool. I, I don't mind that. Yeah, yeah. I don't mind popular psychology. Yeah. I mean, when a book, it's backless now. You know, when a book is frontless, you're on the front table. It would be terrible if you're not. But when it's backlist, it's okay for it to find a little home in popular psychology. But, yeah, uh, once a, the Menestoic Goats was a new age, which pissed me off. <laughs> it was a new age? Yeah. <laughs> that really annoyed me. I can um, see that, yeah. But in Britain, I'm in, uh, in Waterstones, I'm in smart thinking. There's nothing better 
than that. That's no. a that's a category yeah. over there. Oh, okay, yes. wow. It's, yeah, it's not a Barnes and Noble, right? That. No, no. Yeah. I went into the humor section. I yeah. went into like essays. I went into, right. and then I went up to the guy because that's my last resort is right. to talk to somebody. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm glad it was there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was, yeah, actually, he, he I, was, I said, what do you have by John Ronson? And he stopped for maybe like two seconds and he was like, oh, right. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Uh, uh, OK. The, uh, yeah. So you've been publicly shamed. I got the Yeah. He was, oh. he was all about you. Hey, good. Well, shout out to uh, Burlington uh, <laughs> Barnes & Noble. How do you get the access that you get? I mean, oft, often I don't. Yeah. Um, Seems like you do. Re- reading your book, every yeah. everything that it brings you from one thing to another and then the next paragraph, you're talking to this person already. I, I definitely think the books are like, they should be like rivers, like when, you know, rivers find their way around stones and not getting access. Not getting access used to kill me, used to destroy me. And I thought, you know what? No, just find another way around the stone. Um, so... So the times when I don't get access, I just don't make it to the finished book. But the, but the way I mostly get access is just to be passionate. Yeah. Um, it's to be passionate, like, like to really care about the story, to really. And I think that that rubs off on interviewees. Yeah. Um, and that's always been the way. I've always wanted to tell stories that I really want to tell. Yeah. yeah. And you're a very likable guy in person. So I imagine when you meet these people that, that you write about, they enjoy the conversation with you. Yeah, I think so. And they like the fact that I've really done my research yeah. and that I am passionate. Um, I think that's got a lot to do with it. Now that I'm more well-known, um, I think that sometimes helps and sometimes hinders, but it probably yeah. balances itself out. I mean, I think some people, like when I first started, I spent a year with an Islamic militant in London called Omar Bakri Mohammed, and I don't think he would ever have let me in my life if I was well-known. Right. The, fact, the fact that I wasn't was what... So, so it hinders but then it helps like i've just done this year in the porn community for um for this show the butterfly effect and i think the fact that i was well known helped i think they were happy to have like a a sort of well-known journalist on porn sets that's cool yeah do people get mad at you at times oh yeah because you're honest you know and and so you sometimes you don't paint people in the best light you paint it the way it happened the way you felt at the time yeah yeah people people do get mad sometimes and and i never like it like i don't consider myself because you're right, I'm honest. So, um, I, I, and I'm honest about my own failings, just like you guys are. So I sort of think, well, it's fine. We should just all be honest together. That's why I miss the, the Twitter of curiosity. And, and when everybody was just honest and everybody was like, oh, it's okay. Be honest. It's cool. Now, if you're honest, they fucking kill you. Um, so, um, mm-hmm. I, I, but yeah, sometimes people get mad and it makes me upset and it gives me sleepless nights. Uh, uh, it's the last thing I want to do is to, is to upset people. Mm. But it does happen sometimes, and then I, I come up with my own cognitive dissonant reason to not feel bad about it. But, <laughs> but I do feel bad about it. I do. Yeah. Well, I guess you wouldn't be doing your job if you didn't feel bad. Yeah. 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 What um, the la- last question I have here, and thank you very much, John Ronson, for joining us here today, and thank you very much to Audio Boom for letting us use their studio and yeah. showing us around. They're really cool. Thank you. Who slagged you off? On on this show, I don't want to. Yeah, I know I mentioned it in a DM to you, but right. but then you were like, "Who?" Yeah. And I'm like, "Well, I'm not going to remind you." Well, because we, we don't know. We said we, who after we looked up what slagged off the definition <laughs> right. of slagged off. Right. Yeah, it's, a, I think yeah. it's like some British thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, slagged off means attacked. Yeah. I, I was once attacked on your show, but really? yeah, really? but if you we honestly remember that, if yeah. you can't remember it, then then I'm not going to bring it up. Okay, I have a guess. I'll I'll, I'll guess off off air. I guess. Okay. Was okay. Let's just guess now. Yeah. Was it it was the forensic uh, psychology professor? I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) It had to be. Uh, Most people in the profession really like the psychopath test and see it as a as a a really interesting cautionary tale about about confirmation bias and cognitive dissonance and appreciate the fact that I was an outsider coming into the world and looking at it with a fresh eye. Like most psychologists and psychiatrists really like the psychopath test, but then other people within the profession, but but I'm glad to say it's a minority, um, don't like the fact that, that I'm an outsider who came in and I wrote a book about, uh, you know, confirmation bias and so on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so there's a small number of people 
who don't like the book, but I'm glad to say that most people in the profession really do. And when I do, I do the show called Psychopath Night in Britain, where we play this big theatre, it's like 2,000 seat theatres. Yeah, and um, lots of professionals come. It's like lots of care workers, psychologists, social workers, prison officers like like it's it's a kind of busman's holiday for a lot of people in the profession and they like it so you know so so the, so the people in the profession who don't like my book I'm glad to say are, are really in a minority that's gonna be like an enormous sense of pride for you to put something out there and then have people in that profession who deal with it so much yeah the same thing happened with the minister at goats actually loads of people in the military yeah. I got when I mean it's a long time ago that book came out now but I got so many emails from like special forces soldiers yeah. and their wives and and yeah loved it it, it, it is. It's a special source of pride when the people in the world that I'm writing about like it. Yeah. Well, I just have one more thing, Go which is it. to thank Audio Boom for letting us use I their studios. That. I want to personally do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, I, can uh, I do it too? <laughs> and, well, no. I mean, the studios are amazing here. Beautiful. And, yeah. and we're just proud to be on their uh, on their on their on their radar in any way. <laughs> and thank you, John, for coming out and agreeing to do this. And thank you for your stories and for everything that you do, like with in, in literature. It's it's phenomenal. Oh, you guys, thank and you so much. I just want to read a uh, a um, review of you that stood out. The Boston Globe once uh, described you as, <clears throat> this was uh, Jesse Singal. Oh, I like Jesse Singal, and I didn't know he's now with New York Magazine, and I, and I didn't know that he'd ever written about me. Oh, yeah. he It was uh, Lost at Sea. Okay. And he said, Ronson's desire to report on and attempt to explain human dysfunction in its various colorful forms. That you have this desire and you report on human dysfunction in its various colorful forms is such a such a cool way to put what you do. Thank you. And, and never in a condescending way, I hope. Always in an empathetic way, fully aware of my own dysfunctions and all of our dysfunctions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.